because the fire is going to continue to grow and double every 30 seconds, whether you act or not. So you better act. Adopting a first responder mindset and leadership today on HFMA's Voices in Healthcare Finance podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Erica Grotto. Today, I'm talking with Michael Booman, founder and CEO of Red Dot, about how leaders can benefit from thinking like a firefighter. Later, I'll be talking with HFMA senior editor, Nick Hutt, about part four of our Healthcare 2030 series, which is available today at hfma.org. But first, Nick is here with HFMA policy director, Sean Stack, to discuss the latest in healthcare finance news. Hi, everyone. This is Nick Hutt. By my count, this is the seventh segment of Beyond the News that Sean and I have recorded. And it's already the third time that we're touching on the new surprise billing regulations for 2022. And I think that's justified because in the context of healthcare billing practices, this is a game-changing set of regulations that providers need to be ready for. And they take effect in less than a month. Sean, in the second week of November, HFMA had its annual conference in Minneapolis. And I know you had an opportunity to engage with members on the topic of surprise billing. So based on the interactions you had with leaders and representatives of provider organizations, where do things stand in terms of preparation for some of these new policies? I think that's a fair question. I would say that providers are clearly much further along in the process than the health plans are, which to most is a bit scary, given that health plans are the ones who truly control the out-of-pocket expenses for patients especially the patients who are insured. That being said, providers are really working diligently to build workflows out in preparation for not only healthcare services that are to be scheduled for the insured and uninsured and self-pay patients, but also workflows for those who are shopping for healthcare services. But since HHS and the Department of Treasury and the Department of Labor have so far held health plans for the most part unaccountable in the transparency and surprise billing regulations rollout, there still is a lot of preparation to be done on the legislative side to truly protect the consumers or patients against surprise bills or inadequate transparency issues. So, yes, I think the providers are working diligently to build their workflows. I know they're at a crunch, especially the self-pay and uninsured regulations go into a full effect January 1st for the most part. But there's still a lot of work to be done. Most definitely. And the self-pay and uninsured regulations that you were referring to uh, specifically entail the requirement to provide a good faith estimate to those patients in advance of uh, any scheduled procedures. So as we take a deeper dive into some of these processes that need to be put in place, what are some of the leading areas of concern for providers at this point? Yeah, Nick, I would say one of the leading areas of concern as far as the self-pay uninsured folks go regarding the good faith estimates is the financial assistance calculations that are in the regulation. Hospitals and providers have been pretty good about providing good faith estimates under the price transparency rule to patients, but now the new regulations have some pretty strict guidelines on providing a good faith estimate within 24 hours of scheduling the service. And that needs to be all inclusive of any financial aid or self-pay or prompt pay discounts that the patient may qualify for. So getting all of those documents and all that assessment done within 24 hours and something that needs to be done directly with the patient 
is a big concern because that's a heavy lift for not only the providers, but also for the patients to get that information to the providers to make that accurate assessment. Yeah, for sure. That's going to be a significant undertaking. One of uh, several areas that could really prove to be daunting in this whole new set of regulations. Are there any concerns about unknowns or issues that may catch providers off guard? My sense is that folks are hopefully past the stage where they don't know what they don't know, but there's still some things that uh, people have questions about. That's a good way to put it, Nick. There are things that we don't know still and that really are still very vague. The independent dispute process and the IDR entities that will be you know, securing contracts to kind of referee or judge that independent dispute process, that's still a bit unknown. And the transparency on how health plans will be calculating the qualified payment amounts for reimbursement to providers does not have a great deal of clarity around it. And there's not a great deal of clarity on how those health plans will disclose that information in the IDR process to both the providers and the IDR entity reviewing that process. So HHS focuses on using the QPA from the health plans as the only true benchmark during the dispute process. And that's very concerning to most because given that the IDR entity overseeing the dispute process doesn't know what goes into the makeup of that QPA, we're not certain that those QPAs will always cover the provider's cost for providing those services to the patients. So yeah, there's still some, you know, what we don't know, we don't know existing out there that needs to be clarified by the tri-agencies. Yeah, great point. And and that independent dispute resolution process is definitely a sticking point among provider organizations going into these new rules. Uh, you saw the reaction from hospital advocacy groups when that process was handed down and it was strongly opposed to the uh, procedures that HHS put in place. Well, hey, Sean, thanks very much for your insights. Again, January 1st is the start date and certainly best practices and procedures are going to evolve over the next year. So we'll, we'll be keeping you up to date at hfma.org slash news. And I can't emphasize this enough, but Sean and our healthcare financial practices team put together a pair of in-depth summaries that contain everything you need to know about these new rules. And for HFMA members, those are available by going to the industry initiatives tab at hfma.org and then selecting regulatory resources. I recently started a Netflix rewatch of the British series, The IT Crowd, which centers on the IT department in a big company in London. That's probably why a certain scene popped into my head as I was preparing today's podcast. In the scene, the office catches on fire and the employee responsible sits calmly at his desk, emailing the fire department to ask for help. When he's done, he just sits back and waits and spoiler, the fire keeps on burning for the rest of the episode. Today, we're not talking about literal fires, but there's a reason the phrase putting out fires is ubiquitous in the workplace. And if you've ever used that phrase yourself, you'll want to hear from my guest today. I'm talking with Michael Booman, founder and CEO of Red Dot, a company that specializes in resolving motor vehicle accident accounts for healthcare organizations. But it's his work as a firefighter and an EMT that's the focus of our conversation today. According to Booman, spending years as a first responder provided the basis for his management style. So recently, we got to talking about what leaders can learn from first responders when the fires are less literal, but just as potentially destructive. 
my first day in the fire service and fire academy, they took us down to the bay. And I remember being between the 110 foot aerial and the big rescue, heavy rescue truck. And this old salty captain puts his foot up on the wear well and says, okay, what do you think a firefighter does? And we're all type A personality. So everyone's spouting off, you know, we're here to save people or save uh, property and, and lives and, and serve our community. He goes, yep, all of that's true, but you're a problem solver. I, mean, I look out and I see a bunch of Swiss army knives. Firefighters solve problems. And that really stuck with me because he really did a great job of boiling down the essence of what a first responder does. Uh, and most notably a fireman does is to solve problems. And that has guided me as an entrepreneur and, and as a CEO of this company to be in that position to always be finding a solution to problems that continually come up. You know, we're in fluid environments, right? We are not in static environments, certainly not in healthcare. The last year and a half teaches us that, that ability to step up and solve a problem and to be in motion solving those problems and to act and to execute. Uh, we don't spend a lot of time in analysis. Let's dig into that a little further, because I know there are people listening who might be panicking right now because I have that feeling. I am definitely a person who spends a lot of time analyzing things. If this is something that comes naturally to you, I don't know that you have an answer to this question, but how do you get from paralysis because you're afraid of making the wrong move to just make a move? Well, there's a bigger question behind that, I think, which is, it's down to culture and leadership. Are you in a position where you're empowered to make decisions and to act? And how are mistakes treated? Because there'll be mistakes. So I believe I'm naturally inclined to act. I think as a first responder, that's a hard wire that you received at your download. You can get a lot better at it. It's a trainable skill, but I really do think it's a question of, are you in a culture that supports that? If you're not, where if you're punished for making mistakes or stepping outside of your lane or creating innovation, then your paralysis is fear-based on what can occur to you versus what the outcome can be. Uh, so I would first think of that. But assuming you have good support, good leadership, and a good culture where you're allowed to innovate, start small, but start. We have a saying in the fire service that a bad decision is better than a no decision. Because the fire is going to continue to grow and double every 30 seconds, whether you act or not. So you better act. And also knowing that when you do act, everything's going to pivot and change anyway, because it's a fluid environment, especially now if it, relating this back to healthcare, you know, dealing with the COVID pandemic has really been a slow moving, never ending mass casualty incident for people to respond to in whatever role that they're in, right? Healthcare uh, finance executives and members of revenue cycle teams aren't putting out actual fires, but they are in their world. They still have to respond to these difficult situations that weren't scripted. You know, every day being a new day, if you're not comfortable doing that, continually being in a situation that really requires it or calls for it can add a lot of stress, negative stress, uh, for sure. So I can sympathize with that. You might not be putting out a literal fire, but to someone else, it might feel like that. And I, I offer something that seems perhaps not connected, but go take a CPR class. Go learn how to actually treat a patient and learn a skill that's a, it's a life threat skill. And of course, I recommend your local fire department to teach you that. But 
go take a four hour CPR class and a first aid class and begin to break that barrier of acting and feeling empowered because CPR, the Heimlich maneuver, basic splinting skills that you learn in these first aid courses are valuable. And they're a continuation of the care that we as, as professional responders provide. And so that might be a tip that your listeners, if they're trying to find, how can I empower myself? How can I begin to not spend so much time in analysis and act? Act, go take a CPR course and see what that feels like. And, and I've had students that come back to me and say, you know, for the first time, I didn't have that fear that I didn't know what to do. I think there's something to that. And, and if any of your listeners take us up on that suggestion and they give you any feedback, I'd, I'd sure like to hear it. Yeah, I would definitely like to hear about that too. In my world, having a background in performing and, and being on stage, it, it's improv, right? It's being able when you're called upon to just jump in and say something, anything, because your audience doesn't care what you say. They just care that you say something. If you stand there like staring into space, then that's the thing that people are going to remember. But if you jump up and say something dumb, nobody's going to care in five seconds. Right. So, um, so speaking of making the wrong move, one of your core values here is admit mistakes. And that is really, really hard for some people. I'm talking about myself, but probably a lot of others and maybe lots of people who are listening too. But there's there's more than just being able to admit your mistakes, right? As a leader, you need to be welcoming to that. So can you talk a little bit about that? How to be a leader who is okay with mistakes being made and can use them for learning? Absolutely. And this is a direct bar off of the fire service where, you know, the old adage is we screw up, own up. In fact, we have that. Uh, I've I've borrowed that very thing and put it into the core value of our company or one of them, which is when you screw up, own up. And what you're doing is allowing others to learn from your mistake. But the key to that is that the leadership allows for it. And I've been fortunate to be on some great crews where, you know, in in the fire service, a mistake can be this. Uh, I was on a truck company, so we did forcible entry. And say we came up on a door that we had to force that I didn't know how that lock functioned or how best to breach that door. And so entry was delayed because of my inability to know that door. And there's two ways you could look at that. One is, hey, man, that door is in your first due. You need to know that door. That's on you to know that. So you didn't. That's your mistake. And you need to own that. And the second side is, okay, you didn't know that door. Now we have a chance to what I, we refer to as get expert. All right, I had a problem with that door. Guess what next week's training is going to be? That door. And now our entire crew is going to be an expert on that door. And that's the example of taking what could be seen as a mistake, meaning, hey, you should know the door in your first two and didn't. Well, we realized that happened. I could have hit it in that example. Hey, I, I had trouble forcing this door. Do I have to tell anybody that? No, I'm the only guy forcing the door. But I went back to my team and said, hey, I had an issue with this door. I would like to see that door again. And we set up a training where the entire department trained on that door. And we all got a chance to become expert. So I was able to step up and say, I had an issue with this door. As a truckie, I shouldn't have issues with doors. But I did. And now the entire department was able to learn from that. And that was because I had good leadership and felt comfortable. Raised my hand and said, hey, man, I had this issue and turn that into a positive. And I carry that over into my company. And of course, the caveat is, it has to truly be a mistake. It can't be fraud. It can't be nefarious. It can't be 
that kind of negative connotation. It has to be a true mistake. And fortunately, in, in healthcare finance, you know, we're not in life and death anymore. So if we make a mistake, it's paper and money, sometimes just time. But it truly has to have a culture that accepts that. And the best way to do that as a leader is lead by example. I make a mistake in my company. I acknowledge my mistake. I treat it like an action after on a fire scene and share it with my staff and say, this is where I screwed up. Here's what I think can go better. You guys have anything on this thing? Okay. Next time I see this, this is what I'm going to do. And it takes a bit for people to trust that. So as a leader, you have to move first and generally more than once. You know what I mean? Because it's, it's, it is an unusual thing to have. And our society as a whole is kind of that way. But you know, finding fault is, is the American way. Finding the solution is not. If anyone can take anything from this talk and borrow from the fire services, is treat it the way we do. Share it with your crew, get a chance to get expert on it, and let other people learn from those mistakes. Thank you again so much for joining me today. I'm curious to hear how listeners go out and jump in and solve some problems. Erica, thanks for having me. Part four of HFMA's Healthcare 2030 series comes out today. You can go over to hfma.org industry initiatives and take a look at that. The theme of this one is the future of strategic investments. And here to talk about it is senior editor, Nick Hutt, who authored the article. Hey, Nick. Hey, Erica. So tell me about the theme of this one. We've talked about the CFO of the future. We've talked about the workforce of the future. We've talked about the future of consumer expectations. And now we're in strategic investments. This report, as the title suggests, is a deep dive into the investments that healthcare organizations should be considering or really making now uh, in order to put themselves in the best position to succeed over the next decade. Forces that are financial, technological, and even societal in nature are ushering in profound changes to healthcare. And this report tries to answer the question of where the traditional provider organizations can invest their precious resources to be ready for those changes. So tell me a little bit about who you talked to and some of the things they had to say. I had an opportunity to speak with leaders of several health systems and several industry thought leaders as well. If I were gonna pick one big change that they called out, it's that a greater and greater share of healthcare is gonna be moving out of the hospital and into various other settings such as urgent care and ambulatory surgical centers. Of course, that trend has been in place for several years now, but also into the home and other community-based locations. So hospitals and health systems need to have an infrastructure in place to provide that type of care and to excel at providing that care. So a lot of the insights from the sources I was able to speak with involve sort of the various components that go into setting up that type of infrastructure. Well, it definitely sounds like some important information that our members are going to want to check out. So again, if you would like to read that piece, it is out today at hfma.org. You can read all four parts of the series there. We'll also have another episode of the podcast coming up in January with a few of the organizations that have helped make this project possible. So be on the lookout for that as well. Thank you so much for joining me today, Nick. Erica, great to be with you. Thank you. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. 
Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. We have some great topics coming up on the podcast. So if you haven't done it yet, please subscribe on your favorite app and be sure to leave us a rating and maybe a review. And if you'd like to talk to us, you can reach our team at podcast at hfma.org. We're still recording. No, we're not. Are we really?